at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, May 22nd, 2023 edition. I am Justin Klein, and I am here today to help you become a better investor. And I do that by giving you some data and some perspective of over 20 plus years of investment experience, as well as answering your questions. That's ultimately the most important part of the show. It's you and the topics that you bring and uh, our unbiased answers that we're going to uh, give you. No hidden agenda, just trying to help you, help guide you to the, the successful path of investing. And that means weeding out emotions, focusing on the task at hand, not chasing headlines. And, and these things typically are not natural for anybody. But the more you do this, the more you'll realize what the pitfalls are. Uh, and, and oftentimes, they're very avoid- avoidable. And so we're here to guide you towards success, eliminate the fear and greed of the, in the decision-making process, and help you, be, help you put you on the path to financial freedom. And once again, your participation is vital. Our anytime listener line is always ready for you at 888-99-CHART. And my focus point looks in the story behind this question. Should you plan to capture higher savings yields with a CD ladder? Now, a diversified portfolio is essential and a a CD ladder can capture higher yields amid interest rate uncertainty. So we're going to look at that story. Also, time permitting, I want to touch on a few other things. One is in regards to what businesses are hurt the most from rate increases. And hint, hint, it's actually the smaller business. So we're going to look at that. Also, the recent trends within the banking industry kind of upended the traditional thought process around banking deposits and the value of them. So we're going to look at that. And then lastly, home prices. They fell the largest annual drop in more than 11 years. This was in April. So we're going to look at the data and see what what that is telling us about the housing market more broadly. I also have some voice bank questions to answer. One is in regards to Roche Holdings as well as innovative industrial properties. And I have an iTunes review question as well. Now, my perspective today looks at the history of central banks. So we're going to look at that. And so I have all this planned for you on today's episode of Invest Talk. And of course, we're taking your live calls at 888 chart So you get through and answer your question on today's show. And let's take a look at the market today. It was 
solidly up day, and small caps definitely led. Small cap growth was up 1.08%, small cap value up about 1%. So kind of a, a different viewpoint of how the market has been reacting most of the year. Small caps had lagged, but today small caps definitely outperformed. Large cap was roughly flat. And you see that with the broad U.S. market only up 0.14%, but small caps themselves up 0.9% on average. So very good day for the small caps, which uh, kind of pretends to a better economy. And that's uh, that was kind of the signal uh, of the noise uh, that you saw in today's market. But we'll see if we get some follow-through. Obviously, the debt ceiling uh, continues to be in, head- in the headlines, even though I still remain that it is uh, more fear-mongering than actual reality. All right. So that was the market today. And we are going to pivot to our first voice bank question at 888-99-CHART. Hey, Justin and Steve. My name is Alonzo from Miami, Florida. Thank you for all you guys do for us. I have a question on Lumen, take a symbol, L-U-M-N. I'm taking a pretty good beating on this on this stock. As you guys know, it's, it's falling from its highs. My question is, should I sell and take my losses now? Or should I keep this in my portfolio and wait for it to eventually come back up? I'll listen to your answer on the program. Thank you. Well, the answer to that has a lot to do with whether this is going to go bankrupt or not. Lumen has a lot of debt uh, and they have a new management team that is taking the value of their assets and they're they're, they're selling off uh, certain parts of the business and really trying to get that, that debt load down. And they've done so pretty successfully so far. If you look back five years ago, they had $37 billion in debt. Now that's dwindled down to under $20 billion. And they've done that through just simply cash flow of their business because it is a positively cash flowing business and selling off parts of their business at uh, pretty good multiples, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times enterprise value to EBITDA when the underlying stock is trading at about six times. So, but they do have Still, $20 billion, that's a lot of debt. Free cash flow at about trailing 12 months, a little less than a billion. But that's come down, uh, obviously, because they're selling off businesses. So this is all about the turnaround story and whether they can succeed. And so far, the market says they can't. Uh, so this is either going to go to zero or it is going to uh, come out of this restructuring process in a much better footing, paying down debt. Uh, and uh, having strong value for shareholders. But so far, the market is not agreeing with this turnaround story, despite their uh, underlying positive cash flow and, and uh, the, the good progress that they've made. So that's what you have to decide. Is it going to go bankrupt or not? I still think in the end, I think they, they avoid it, but it uh, looks like it's going to continue to be uh, rough going for the near term. So that's where we're at, and that's what you have to dig in and decide. Now we're going into a quick break. break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. Or if you're listening via the live stream on AM 1220 in the Bay Area, you can call right now at 888 chart The Invest Talk Premium Newsletter won't guarantee your success but it can help you become a smarter investor. And here's good news. From now through Memorial Day, 
Each new subscriber to the Invest Talk Premium newsletter will get a free copy of Steve Peasley's book, Above Average Investing for the Average Investor. That's right. You listen to Steve and Justin on Invest Talk, and now for a limited time, you can receive a free copy of Steve Peasley's book. When you subscribe to the weekly KPP Premium newsletter, you'll get an up-to-date analysis of current market conditions, two stock ideas that Steve and Justin think you might want to watch, and tips on how to properly manage your portfolio assets. Learn more and subscribe now at kppfinancial.com. And please be sure to tell your friends and family members. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Justin or Steve. I was hoping you can do me a favor and do a quick assessment on Roche Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol R-O-G dot S-W, R-O-G dot S-W. I know the data may be a little bit difficult to find because it is international. It's a Swiss company. But if you can just take a look at the fundamentals and the technicals for me and just let me know what you think about the company. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. All right. Looking at Roche, and this is a Swiss biopharma and diagnostics company. And it mainly sells oncology therapies. And this was uh, part of a merger of Genentech uh, back in the day, 2008, uh, something like that. And oncology products account for 50% of their sales. So very focused on that part of the business. Now, the stock has declined pretty dramatically since last spring, over the last year. It was trading in the 50s back in April, and now it's trading right about $40 per share, uh, but up from its recent low in the, mid, in the mid-30s. So the question is, why is that? Why is that? Uh, and uh, is that uh, patent cliffs? That could certainly be a big part of it. Earnings are expected to fall 10% this year and then go back up 11% next year. Not a whole lot of growth. Uh, 2018 earned $2.30 a share. This year, it's supposed to make $2.48 a share. So very slow growth business. And you're going to pay roughly about 15 times forward-looking earnings. You know, Slightly below market, but it deserves that because it's slow growth. Uh, now, I, once again, I, I really want to understand its patent cliff uh, and if there are any major losses of patents going forward. You have to really dig into that. In, in the pharma industry, there's a lot of those. There's a lot of companies that have blockbuster businesses and, uh, and, and it's accounts for one or two, you know, one or two percent of one or two drugs account for a large percentage of their revenue. And I really need to dig into that. Uh, and then also their exposure to the U S market. There's a lot of pushback on, Medicare reimbursements and things like that, are they in the crosshairs of that potential uh, push lower in reimbursements? So I, I really have to look into that. I, I don't have anything uh, off the top of my head uh, in regards to Roche that I've looked at myself. Uh, like you said, it's a foreign company, so the, the data is a little more sparse, but it, it's very large, $274 billion market cap, so certainly better than most foreign names. But last quarter, revenues down 9%, earnings down 6%, 2% yield. You know, my, my sense of this is 
it's not cheap enough for, for me to, to really get in. Uh, like I said, enterprise value to EBITDA is right around 13, and that's near its long-term average. So looks fairly valued. I worry about the patent cliffs and the pressure on drug prices. So for now, uh, I'm going to pass. And then on top of that, you add the, uh, where is it? You add the chart, which, although it's recovered, is still in a downtrend. So I'm passing on Roche. Now, my focus point looks in the story behind this question. Should you plan to capture higher savings yields with a CD ladder? Now, this is something a lot of people are, are thinking about now that there are there's yield, right? It used to be a, uh, my bank account was yielding me nothing. My savings account yielding me nothing. But CDs were only yielding 1% or 2%. So why am I going to lock up my money into something where I'm still only getting you know, 1%, 1.5% yield on? That's what most CDs were, were yielding up until, call it 18 to, to 20 months ago. And now, um, now that they yield a decent amount, you can get 5 5.5% uh, in some places, depending on the maturity date. For FDIC insured, very safe CDs. And that's, that's a, a hefty, a hefty difference than your average savings account, which is still, it's rising because of pressure on, on deposits, but it's still around 1% or less. So a CD ladder is, is, is a common strategy. And now it could be CDs, it could be corporate bonds. We do that for clients. We, we invest in corporate bonds, uh, typically yielding much better than CDs, but you do have some credit risk there. Whereas CDs, remember, there's no credit risk. So it depends on the credit risk that you're, you're willing to take. Now, the reason ladders can be helpful is if you think interest rates could go higher, okay, over the coming months and years, and you don't want to lock in your rate at these current levels um, exactly, right? You want to have some optionality to reinvest it once they mature, they mature at higher rates. But the opposite could be true as well, where you say, hey, I think interest are going to be cut, and the market's kind of pricing that in the end of this year, early next year, that the Fed will cut rates. And therefore, maybe you want to do a CD ladder, but push that out a little longer, okay? Now, a ladder in general just means splitting up your maturity dates uh, amongst all the money that you have to invest. And so it could mean, say you buy five different maturities, five CDs or corporate bonds, if you wanna do corporate bonds, uh, at different maturity dates. You know, for us, we're new clients that come forward typically going, you know, a few bonds three years out, a few bonds four years out, five years out, et cetera, and kind of ladder them that way. Um, but that's more intermediate term. Some people want more short term, right? You want access to that capital. That can be a very important aspect as well. You don't want to lock your money up for three, four, five years. You want to say, hey, uh, I need that money at this you know, six months from now, a year from now. I want that to mature. And that's very common for retirees, right? You have maybe your two-year bucket, the amount of money you need over the next two years, and you ladder those CDs uh, maybe on a quarterly basis to mature at a time when you're going to need that money, right? You put that in your bank account and that's your money for the next three months. That's a very common strategy uh, for retirees. And I think it's a smart one for kind of your liquid cash, uh, especially in this environment where now you can get decent yield, all right? Now we're heading into a break. 
We're ready to take your questions live on the Best Talk at 888 Shark. Everybody wants a secure financial future. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to provide their unbiased answers. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve and Justin. Quick question for you. Let's go to Gene in North Carolina. Let's talk about CDs. Yes, Justin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I just had a follow-up comment about your, your, your talk about the CD ladders. When I scan my um, my uh, discount brokerage firm for all the CDs that are available, mm-hmm. I'd have to say that the vast majority of them are callable CDs, just like mm-hmm. callable bonds. Mm-hmm. So that's just one bit of warning that you know a CD might be good for five years from now, over 5%, and it's FDIC insured, but it may be callable in a year, which means, of course, that... After a year, they can force you, if you bought it, to they'll take it back and give you par. Yeah, that's certainly uh, a little wrinkle if you're buying it from your your brokerage account uh, through, through your brokerage account. That can be a little wrinkle to to make sure you uh, are watching out for. Most CDs you're buying at your at your bank are are not callable, but definitely something to ask when you are uh, are buying CDs. So um, that's a great point. Thank you. Bye. No problem. Thanks for the call. Yeah, that, that is a, a little wrinkle, and that happens with bonds as well. And that's why when we search for bonds, a lot of people are, are focused on yield to maturity, okay? What's my yield once it matures? No, we look for yield to worst, yield to worst, which means in the worst case scenario, it means your bond gets called from you, what is your yield? And so... That's a little, once again, a little wrinkle that most average investors are not looking out for, are the, the callable nature of uh, fixed income securities more broadly. And that can throw a little wrench, meaning they're not as straightforward as uh, your, your standard CD or standard bond, but they are, are out there and you have to uh, account for those, those wrinkles. Now let's grab another voice bank question from Germany. Hello, Stephen Justin. This is Paulo from Germany calling. Today, I have a question on innovative industrial properties. The stock hasn't really moved up lately, and uh, it's kind of like meddling between 65 and $70. And um, I'm asking myself, uh, am I assessing the stock completely wrong? Because uh, I think it looks really cheap technically it doesn't look so well but um, actually they are growing their revenues and um, the interest rates rising is maybe a problem for them but um, well I don't I don't know they don't have so much debt so I don't know I would love to have an explanation why this stock is so cheap or looks so cheap or maybe you have you guys have a different assessment would like to hear the answer on the podcast and i'm looking forward to it i appreciate all the work you do and um thank you bye-bye all right looking at iipr this is innovative industrial properties inc uh this is a name we've owned for a long time for for clients and it's it's obviously down the dumps right now, and and really I think it has all, all to do with the, the the marijuana industry, right? What they do is they lease 
space to the cannabis uh, grow facilities. Uh, they own dispensaries, things like that, that are, are leased out and they earn a high return on uh, those assets. And that's why we really like uh, the name. Uh, but if you overlay the chart with uh, like an MJ, which is the basically the, the cannabis uh, ETF, it looks very similar. So uh, despite the fact that if you look at the business prospects, they're still doing very, very well. It's cash from operations trailing 12 months is at an all time high. It's free cash flow is similarly at an all time high. So the underlying business is just fine operating margins at 59% uh, down slightly from where it was the end of 2021 at 66%, but still very, very profitable. Uh, so I don't really see an issue here, very little debt on its balance sheet. Uh, it, it's really, I think, a sentiment uh, gauge uh, within the industry. Obviously, it's also a REIT. So if you're looking at uh, the REIT sector as a whole, that's also been uh, struggling as uh, uh, there's a lot of short selling uh, on certain types of REITs, especially those that are focused on office. So that's kind of been weighing down the, the REIT industry. So I think this is this is an opportunity if you still have faith in the business, which we do, uh, because there's kind of those two aspects to the REITs and the uh, the marijuana REIT, the, the sentiment within the mar marijuana industry or cannabis industry is down in the dumps. And but this is outside the realm of office, right? And it's not your typical dispensary or grow facility. It's renting to those. And they've had a few uh, of their clients uh, default on their lease, but they've been able to replace them. And so uh, everything is still looking uh, generally up uh, on innovative industrial properties. Let's go to Sam in San Francisco wants to talk about PayPal. Yeah. Uh, hi, Justin. I'd like to get an, an, a good sense from you on the entry point for PayPal. Well, PayPal is at a pretty good support here. However, the business prospects still are struggling. Um, so you're you're kind of throwing uh, money at something that is clearly in a downtrend, although it's at a uh, major support here around 60, can it gain traction and improve technically? Uh, because if you look at the business, uh, business is, is weakening, margins are weakening. They're reliant on third-party payment processors uh, even more. Um, so that's really what's, uh, what's uh, weighing on the stock right now is, are those margins. So. If you're looking for a technical place, this is probably it, but that's kind of taking having a leap of faith. Um, so there's still a lot of risk in the name. Now we're taking a quick break, but we're ready for your calls on Invest Talk at 888 chart eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers. Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. There's a reminder now is an especially good time to subscribe to the KPP Premium Newsletter. From now through Memorial Day, each new subscriber will get a free copy of Steve's book, Above Average Investing, for the Average Investor. Now, when you subscribe to the weekly KPP Premium Newsletter, you'll get an up-to-date analysis of current market conditions, two stock ideas that Steve and I think you might want to just keep on your watch list, tips on how to properly manage your portfolio of assets as well. You can learn more and subscribe at investtalk.com. Let's go over to Sid in North Carolina and talk about ATKR. Hi, Justin. Good evening. Thank you for taking the call and thanks for all the wonderful knowledge that you are giving to people like me. Thank you. Appreciate the yeah, kind words. I have this is in my radar for the last few days. Not sure if it's a good value or a growth stock or what's the entry point. The other numbers looks quite promising, so I just want to see if there is any hidden spot here, and if you think it's a good stock, what could be the entry point? Thank you. All right, this is Atcor, and it's a diversified industrial company, and has two business segments, electrical and safety and infrastructure. Okay, it's, uh, its sales are highest in the electric business, electrical business, in the United States, and so it makes... PVC conduit, steel conduit, uh, staples for, uh, or sorry, uh, safety and infrastructure segment as well, and that includes mechanical tubes, metal framing, etc. So an industrial name that's certainly doing well since the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, they were only making three dollars and seventy-eight cents a share, but they made twenty-one dollars and fifty-five cents a share last year. So let's make eighteen dollars and two cents this year, and sixteen dollars and forty-four cents next year so clearly the pandemic has helped them and they've taken that money and they've done a few things they've paid down their debt long-term debt has gone from let's see about 800 or sorry 900 million to 761 million so that's a bit of a positive shares outstanding they have also been buying back shares pre-pandemic it was sitting around 47 million shares outstanding and now we're at 38 million shares outstanding so that's a positive. No dividend, but that's how they are returning the nice cash flow to shareholders. And if you look at their free cash flow, it's about $845 million, trailing 12 months on a market cap that's only $4.7 billion. That's pretty good. I like their balance sheet. Their enterprise value to EBIT is trading at about four times. That's pretty cheap. But they do look like they're over-earning a little bit. Uh, return on equity is 68% right now. Longer term, it's closer to the high 20s, low 30s, but it's still a very good company. Uh, so I like where this is at. I like the industrial space. 
earnings, while unlikely to stay as elevated, if you can earn in the in the teens and remain in that level for an extended period of time, uh, I think they'll they'll do quite well. Now the technicals are let's see has pulled back recently, but nothing wrong. It's still an uptrend, making a series of higher highs and higher lows. Let me get you a good support level on this. Yeah, it's going to be right around the 200-day moving average, right about 113. Right now, it's trading at 123. So uh, I, I would I would give this uh, a thumbs up uh, on the pullback to that 113 level. Thanks for the call. That was uh, definitely a cheap name. One of those names that they're not paying a dividend. You, people might gloss over it. But if you look at the valuation, you look at the, the strength of their business uh, and the technicals, it all lines up pretty good. Now, it's a mid-cap name. It's going to be fairly volatile. It's certainly going to be cyclical. But holding up, especially in an environment where the economy is slowing. So I'm going to give ATKR a thumbs up. Now, my perspective today looks at the history of central banks. And as you might presume, this can be lengthy and complex. But in the limited time we have, I'll do my best to simplify this overall. So let's start with the definition. Central bank is simply a term that describes the authority responsible for policies that affect the country's money and credit. Money and credit. The creation and, and management of that. Okay, So they have tools like monetary policy, right? moving interest rates, for example, discount window lending, so emergency lending to banks. Changes in reserve requirements. So in a, pretty much every banking system is a fractional reserve banking system, meaning you have to have some sort of reserves. And a very powerful tool is to change the level of reserves that uh, certain banks or all banks have to abide by. And so that is something typically central banks uh, uh, change. And this is all to achieve certain policy goals. Uh, for the Fed, it's Financial, st financial price stability and uh, economic stability, uh, maximum unemployment, I think is what they call it. Uh, now, there are three goals of modern monetary policy, and it's the value of the money, stability of the value of the money. And the second goal is stability of the real economy. They typically look at employment, but economic growth is certainly an important driver as well. If the economy is shrinking, I don't think they're going to be having tight monetary policy. So that's something where they manage the business cycle and try to offset the shocks in the economy. And frankly, I don't think they're very, they're good at the shock part, right? Stepping in when things are, are rough and, and smoothing over the, the edges, but kind of managing the broad economy, I don't think they're very good because they're, Policy tools are very blunt, and they act with a lag. So something uh, to consider. Now, the third goal is financial stability. And this is about efficiency and, and smoothly running payment systems and prevention, prevention of financial crises. Now, the story of central banking goes back to at least the 17th century. And it was the first institution recognized as a central bank. It was the Swedish Riksbank. Swedish Riksbank, established in 1668. Now, it was a joint stock bank, and it was chartered to lend government funds and to act as a clearinghouse for commerce. And a few decades later, in 1694, the most famous central bank of the era, the Bank of England, was founded. So this is around the time where uh, central banking was a big part of monetary, uh, monetary management. 
So this is, what, 450 years ago, roughly? Now, the Bank of England was also a joint stock company, to pr- and it was to purchase government debt. Other central banks were set up in Europe for similar pur- purposes, and the Banque de France was established by Napoleon in 1800 to stabilize the currency after, after hyperinflation of paper money during the French Revolution, as well as to aid in government finance. And early central banks issued private notes which served as currency, and they often had a monopoly over such notes being issued, very similar to today. Now, while these early central banks helped fund the government's debt, they were also private entities that engaged in banking activities because they held deposits uh, of other banks. So they came to serve other banks, facilitate transactions between banks, provide other banking services, and kind of, once again, smooth out the flow of credit. Now, here in the U.S., UX experienced the most interesting, uh, it was the most interesting. The two central banks in the early 19th century, the Bank of the United States, that was 1791 to 1811, and the second bank of the United States, 1816 to 1836, both were set up as a model, the model was the Bank of England, but there's a lot of deep-seated distrust of any concentration of power because they just had the Revolutionary War, obviously. And so in each case, the charters were not renewed. They didn't want them to have that much power. Now, fast forward, the Federal Reserve System, belonging to the latest wave of central banks, it emerged around the turn of the century. And they were created primarily to consolidate the various instruments that people were using for currency and provide financial stability and manage the gold standard to which at that time the country adhered to. Now before 1914, central banks didn't attach great weight to the goal of maintaining domestic economic stability. It wasn't, right, it was just a, it was more on a state level. States had a lot more sovereignty and that was kind of the beginning of this gradual shift towards more centralized power. And then obviously in World War One, World War Two, and that began uh, a more concentration of power more broadly in government. And then you had the Great Depression, and that certainly pushed more power to the central government and the Federal Reserve. And the Fed regained its independence from the Treasury in 1951, after it was kind of taken over during uh, 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 the Banking Acts of 1933 and 1935, uh, post-Great Depression. Now, at the time, the United States and other advanced countries were part of the Bretton Woods system. Under that enragement, the U.S. dollar was pegged to gold at $35 per ounce. And other countries pegged to the dollar. So de facto linked to gold. Now, another problem that had emerged in modern times is booms and busts, right? Stock markets and housing booms are often associated with business cycle booms and busts often triggered by economic downturns. And ideally, Fed policy should remove that excess liquidity and smooth out these crises. Obviously, that's a complicated subject, but uh, that's a basic understanding of the history of central banking and why today it remains contentious and no system's perfect. I will say that. Uh, you know, a lot of people want this system or that system. They want system change in this way or another way. I don't think any system has, I don't think any system is foolproof. And, you know, will we see a change? I do. I do sometime in the next, say, by 2100, 
right? The next 75 years, I'm sure there will be a major change to central banking and, and, and the policies. Just look at modern monetary theory and, and a lot of people kind of uh, backing that. I don't necessarily agree with it, but uh, you can see how uh, there's always new thinking, different thinking around how economies should be managed. Now, let's swing back to the Vestock Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier from Minnesota on 888 chart. Hi, Stephen Justin, longtime listener here from Minnesota. I found a stock I would love your opinion on, please. The stock is BC, I believe is a ticker symbol, Brunswick Corporation. To pay a dividend that's been growing over the years, the stock has been also growing and just its capital over the years. And um, I believe it's kind of a value play, maybe, in a sector that seems to be pretty stable and so forth. I, from what I've researched, it makes some marine equipment or marine motors and so forth, which are used a lot here in Minnesota on all of our lakes and so forth. So I'm just wondering what you think of the company, if this would be a good investment for long term or if it's something that maybe you'd pass on. Thanks for your help. Look forward to hearing your thoughts on the show. Have a good day. All right. This is Brunswick Corp. It's a leading supplier of recreational equipment. And it has three segments. One is boat manufacturer, uh, brands like Mercury and Mariner, uh, and Boston Whaler and Bayliner boats. It also is a leading manufacturer of fitness equipment, life fitness, and hammer strength brands. And then I think uh, everyone kind of knows Brunswick as a bowling, like a, a manufacturer of bowling equipment. At least that's the way I know it. And they have that segment as well. So, uh, pretty diversified amongst those three industries. They certainly did well during the pandemic as a lot of people bought boats. I know people that bought boats wanted to get out there in nature and not, uh, and, and not get stuck inside. And that was a big factor there. Obviously bowling segment, I imagine was hurt because of that I've looked into the details, but earnings in 2019, they're earning $4 and 33 cents. Last year, they made $10 and three cents. So it's make $10 and 34 cents this year, $11 and 22 cents next year. Now, the big question you have to answer is, was, is this a flash in the pan? Are they keeping their earnings up in reality? If you look at their free cash flow, it surged in late 2020, early 2021 to 721 million trailing 12 months in the mid 2021. But it looks like recently, let me pull this chart back up. It fell down to only 34 million and then peaked back up to 331 million. So I don't love that. I don't love the recent volatility of its cash flow and its earnings. You know, is there a version of the mean going on here? Probably. Uh, shares outstanding are, let's see, they're going down. So they're, they're, they're taking that cash flow and they're buying back shares. I think that's, a, that's a good. Their, their debt is reasonable for the size of their balance sheet or size of the company and their revenues and their cash flows. Uh, they haven't been buying back their debt. I would worry that a little bit. I, I would like to see taking some of that cash flow and buying back the debt. Uh, but my biggest problem here is just that recent volatility of their business. It seems a bit all over the place, even though earnings are one thing, right? Earnings look fairly consistent and fairly stable. Their cash flow is is jumping around a bit. And I want to find out what that baseline is. Is it something that's closer to pre-pandemic type of revenue? Or is this a permanent stair step higher in earnings from 
the four level all the way to the 10 level, which has been kind of hanging out now over the past uh, 18 months or so, right? Earning roughly two, 250 per share. If it can continue to achieve that, I think that's, it's very attractive. But the technicals are kind of mixed, right? It's kind of, uh, kind of neutral. Uh, been an uptrend since last summer, but it's a, it's a precarious uptrend. It's not a very strong one. So I would, I like it. I would keep an eye on it, but I wouldn't buy it just yet until I understand exactly where earnings are likely to level out at. All right. Thanks for the call. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So, if you're going to call, you want to do that right now. No question is too complex or too simple. Whatever's on your mind, give us a call at 888 99Chart. The Invest Talk Premium Newsletter won't guarantee your success but it can help you become a smarter investor. From now through Memorial Day, you can receive a free copy of Steve Peasley's book, Above Average Investing for the Average Investor. Learn more and subscribe now at kppfinancial.com. Hello, hi, just wanted to get your opinion on a couple of covered call ETFs. Just looking at last year's data when everything was down, a few of these covered call strategy ETFs outperformed. They were still negative, but looking at specifically QYLD and XYLD, these are the Global X, NASDAQ, and S&P 500 covered call ETFs. Just wondering how safe they are. I know they make a premium and disperse it to the uh, shareholders by uh, by way of dividends. Just wanted to know exactly how safe these, these ETFs were and which one would you prefer if you were choosing one over the other. Thank you. All right, now these are both cover call ETFs. This is QYLD. That's the one that tracks the NASDAQ 100 and sells cover calls against it. And the other one is XYLD. That's the S&P 500 cover call ETF. Same thing, just uh, looking at the S&P or owning the S&P. Now, how safe are these? Anything that's equity, anything that's equity is going to be aggressive. Okay, now selling cover calls, that lowers the volatility, you could say that's moderately aggressive, but there's got to be aggressive in the name somewhere. So safe is a relative term, right? Just like aggressive is a relative term. There's very aggressive and then there's just aggressive, right? If you're in the S&P 500, just owning that outright, that's going to be aggressive. Owning the NASDAQ is more aggressive, right? But both are aggressive because you're all in equities. Cover calls, once again, it mellows out the volatility on the downside as well as the upside. So for example, last year, the NASDAQ was down 33%, 34%. The QYLD was down 19%. So right, the, you're talking about growth stocks drastically underperformed last year. And this hedged some of the, that downside by roughly 13, 14, 15%. And that's, that's nice, right? Now, this year, the QYLD YLD is up 15%. Why? Because now growth has outperformed so far this year. And then if you look at the S&P, last year it was down 12%. The S&P cover calls was down 12%. And the broad S&P was down about 20 So that also hedged on the downside, right? Lowered that volatility on the downside. And then 
year to date, the S&P cover call ETF is up about 7.8%. Both of those are less than the overall overall, uh, index so far this year. So what you, the, the lesson you, you, you come here is neither of them are safe. This is not safe investing. This is shall safer, I guess, than just owning the, it, the index outright. But ultimately, it's about what that index you're investing in is because that's what you're still doing. You're still owning the underlying. That's what covered calls are. You're owning the underlying and you're selling calls on top of it. If I'm picking one or the other, I'm picking the S&P. Because it's more balanced, it has. Uh, if you're just buying the the Nasdaq, you're just owing those large cap tech names. And if they do well, you're going to do well. This covered call will do well, and uh, vice versa. But I rather own a more balanced portfolio of the S and P. Uh, in the end, I rather own a very different portfolio than both of these names. Uh, but if you're picking between one or the other, I would go with the S and P one. Right. Now, lastly, let's touch a bit on the small businesses and how higher rates are hurting those businesses. And this is all has to do with the average rate of the loans that these firms are now getting. You know, a year and a half, two years ago, small businesses were getting loans at five and a half, six percent. Now they're double digits. And this feeds into their ability to hire. And whereas the large companies, they're still issuing bonds, right? Meta just issue bonds at four and a half, five and a half percent, depending on the uh, the time horizon recently. And that's still pretty cheap historically. Whereas small businesses, once again, their cost of capital is, is going up much more rapidly. And this this is why small businesses have been the source of layoffs. U.S. companies with between one and nine employees laid off or fired 341,000 workers in March. That's more than twice as many as in February. And that was the highest number of layoffs and discharge since May of 2020, and four times as many as these companies reported in March of last year. Companies with fewer than 250 employees accounted for 81% of all layoffs in March. That was compared to 71% in March of last year and 68% March of 2021. So these higher rates are really pushing uh, the small business a lot more than your large cap companies uh, in, in the markets. And they're really the source of, of jobs. And that's why I think the jobs market is going to weaken pretty precipitously over the coming three to six months. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.